welcome to today's conversation in our Collaborative Transformation Podcast Series, Driving the Deal, Focus on Private Equity Investments in Healthcare and Life Sciences. My name is Chris Worling. I'm a transactions lawyer focused on healthcare and life sciences deals and serve as co-chair of McDermott's Global Private Equity Practice. Our group advises clients throughout the life cycle of an investment from leading the initial acquisition to serving as trusted counsel for the portfolio company's ongoing business and eventual sale. We also bring deep industry expertise to our private equity clients in the healthcare space and have been recognized as the top healthcare private equity law firm in the US. As a result, we interact regularly with other leaders from across the industry. And in this podcast series, we wanna bring you into those conversations so you can hear firsthand from some of the key figures across healthcare private equity. For M&A lawyers like myself, the overall structure of how we do deals hasn't changed significantly over the last 20 years, with one major exception. That exception is the impact of representation and warranty insurance. Private equity deals and private transactions generally had been done with a traditional indemnity escrow approach for decades, until the last decade when we started using rep and warranty insurance. For those that don't know what this product is, it's essentially using an insurance provider to come in and underwrite the representations that a seller of a business is giving to a buyer. The result is that if one of those representations turns out to be incorrect, say, for example, the financial statements were inaccurate in some manner, which caused the business to be worthless, then instead of looking to the seller of the business for compensation, an investor or the buyer of the business looks to the insurance company to pay out any damages. So rep and warranty insurance really eliminates some of the friction that was present in getting deals done with indemnity escrows and holdbacks and other approaches to protect the buyers or investors in businesses. For those of us that were you know, working on healthcare transactions, investments in the healthcare industry, because that industry presents some kind of submerged liabilities, some of which take many years to, to come to light. For example, you know, historical uh, billing and coding liabilities. Uh, rep and warranty insurance providers had kind of avoided healthcare deals for a few years, despite the product growing in other subsectors. But now where we sit here in 2021, underwriters have become comfortable with the risks presented by healthcare deals and we are regularly using rep and warranty insurance as a tool to get healthcare transactions done. Rep and warranty insurance is really just one of the many insurance and risk-related issues that fund managers need to be aware of. And so today I'm excited to be joined by Neil Crowder, who heads up Risk Strategies National Private Equity Practice and its Crowder and Company division. Neil founded Crowder and Company and has a wealth of experience in the insurance industry, and specifically in serving the insurance needs of private equity funds. So I am excited to have him on today and to hear what he has to say. Neil, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. So starting off, I really want to get your perspective on the overall growth in the private equity industry. When you launched Crowder and Company, you focused heavily on serving the private equity industry and their insurance needs. Did you envision the growth that we've seen in private equity when you first started Crowder and Company? Well, I, you know, my background was I, I started 
the M&A practice at Marshall McLennan back in the 80s, early 80s. And when I went over to Aon at the end of the 80s, eventually became a vice chairman there out of working out of New York and on the worldwide retail board, et cetera. So I ran private equity M&A for them for 13 years. And it was a continuing explosion. I, I, I can tell you that back when it started, it wasn't there wasn't a word private equity. It was leverage buyouts. Mm-hmm. And then there were a dozen firms. And I was lucky enough to get in on the kind of the ground floor of dealing with a couple of those firms. And it was an area that the insurance industry didn't particularly like. So it, it was a great specialization. But I, I'd love to tell you I had the vision to tell you that in you know, 1986 that I knew where this was going. But if you ever saw my returns on my stock portfolio, you'll know I did not have that vision and I still don't. The, the PE model really did change quite a bit. And I'm going to say into the 90s. And you know, prior to that, the, the model was that uh, a, a founder of a private equity fund would probably take on a protege and over time train that person so that the younger person could then take on more and more of the responsibilities. And hence the, you know, the founder or the older person could you know, do a little bit less, enjoy their lives. They've made a lot of money. And eventually it would they turn it over to the person that they trained. As private equity started to succeed, those founders weren't going away. There was just way too much money on the table. And hence it changed the dynamics of the industry where it used to be one-on-one training, now a single senior partner might have three or four people underneath them. Those three or four people were all fighting for that one partnership spot, but that's great, but the partner wasn't leaving. So what happened? Those younger guys and gals, as they got ready to be ready for that type of transition, the opportunities weren't coming to them. So they were leaving and forming their own firms. So there was a lot of spinoff of startup firms. And fortunately, a lot of that younger talent were very successful on fund ones. And if, you've, if you're an investor in private equity, you've seen, I'm sure, many articles that will attest to that. So the success of those young funds began to spawn more and more of this transition. And it became normal and hence a lot more firms. So. So how have you kind of organized to serve the private equity industry? And what are some of the, the keys in your business to serving funds? Well, first of all, you have to understand that the private equity industry, and effectively, it's a club. And you know, I can tell you when we do our pitch book and we're going in to see a new firm, when we get to the, I think on page six, we begin our list of our private equity clients. We've got over 250 private equity funds. And the presentation usually doesn't go past page seven or eight or nine, which is the the, the client list. Because mm-hmm. people then just go, oh, wait, so you work on this? Do you know this guy? Yeah, we just did his, did you do that deal on the aviation? Yeah, we. oh my gosh, we bid on that. We didn't get it. And it's a club. Once people know that you have expertise in that club and you're doing work for everybody else in the club, you're going to do well. Breaking into that club, not so easy. But our client base has the patience of a young child. They have tons on their desk. They have way too much to possibly do in a 24-hour period. So one, you better know how to deal with them. You better know how to speak to them. 
you don't start with a story. And when someone asks you what time it is, explain that a clock has a second hand and a minute hand, an hour hand. They want to just they want to know what is the time. Ready to so go. starting with the conclusion, tremendous sense of urgency. You probably should focus on not having a whole lot of a personal life because everybody has a deal going. Everybody's got a problem and it's going to be a, a 24-7 type of job. But so responsiveness is, uh, is key number one. Absolutely. And having senior people do the work. Our average experience in our group is 27 years. We do not hire people with less than 15 years of experience, but you better be able to have no geographic restrictions, no P&L restrictions, no industry restrictions. You need broad industry experience with specialization, but you better adopt the the attitude that a, a day is a lifetime and a weekend is an eternity. Does your team organize around that specialization at all? How do you handle that? Because I, I've seen, you know, obviously we're, you know, specialized ourselves in healthcare private equity, and you've seen an enormous amount of specialization, tech funds, healthcare funds, industrials, and so forth. Or do you line the team along those lines? Or Absolutely. And that was one of our also our advantages in joining risk strategies. It's a specialization firm and has lots of verticals like that. So yeah, the healthcare in particular, we've we're both deep in healthcare private equity and we're deep in, in regular healthcare. So it's kind of crucial to, to to bring all the answers to, to these clients with the complexity of those deals. But you know, you've got to organize yourself very, very carefully around their particular needs. When you have a broad base of private equity funds like we do, you will see a little bit of momentum in certain industries where all of a sudden everybody's looking to buy car washes and everybody's looking to buy, you know, auto parking garages. And then, so there's definitely trends that you, you see. And as you, again, as you do a couple of deals and then the next 10 are the same industry, you you are an expert by then. Yep. So I know you've done a wonderful job in building the business because, you know, we, we hadn't seen the Crowder and company name, before five years ago, six years ago, and then all of a sudden you started to see it here and there. And then all of a sudden we had over half our clients working with you. So <laughs> I know you've been uh, you know, serving the heck out of the industry and doing a great job doing it. So let's talk some substance here. Uh, the news is full of SPACs and <laughs> those deals are all over the place. And uh, many of our private equity clients are considering you know, potential sales of portfolio companies to SPACs. They are becoming SPAC sponsors themselves. And this is a trend that looks to continue from where we sit here in March of 2021 for some time now. Tell us a little bit about the insurance dynamics of a SPAC deal and what are some key things that I, you know, owners of businesses, either private equity owners or founder-owned businesses that are considering a SPAC deal really should know about the insurance issues related to SPACs. So it's a, as you said, a a tremendously fast-moving pace right now in the evolution of SPACs, and both from the insurance needs of the investors and who are forming the SPAC and then looking for that investment so that they can de-SPAC and go public uh, again. 
I think for the for the targets of the SPACs themselves, I put it into two buckets. You've got the operator specialized SPACs, and then you've got the private equity and even some VC related SPACs now as well. The private equity fund SPACs have quite a bit of expertise behind them. They've got quite a bit of due diligence process behind them and M&A process behind them. So a bit more, I think, well thought out sometimes than the operator-led SPACs because it's just not their area of expertise. They mm-hmm. they, they may know their, their industry particularly well, but they don't know the M&A process necessarily that well. And you know, for, for most businesses that are going to be purchased by a SPAC, those businesses are still going to be the majority owner. And I think rules of governance, knowing who you're getting involved with is exceptionally important. Um, and I, you know, the operator led SPACs right now, I think over the last six months have a better rate of return. But if I was selling my firm to a SPAC, I probably would have a bit more visibility and comfort with a private equity sponsored SPAC, you know, unless I knew those operators individually. That makes sense. That makes sense. So I've heard there's some kind of issues around DNO insurance in the SPAC space. That's the hornet's nest, right? What's you know what what should people know about that right now? So you're absolutely spot on. And if you thought you knew the answer to the question three months ago, four months ago, six months ago, all of those would be completely different answers. So what what happened six seven months ago? The price of SPACs was, I'll say, 25% of what a SPAC will now cost. And as the markets began to harden for SPACs, there weren't that many underwriters who were leading primary competition for SPACs. And a number of them decided that they had way too much business. You know, one market in particular, they got a report from an outside consultant and said that they were approaching 70% market share for writing SPACs. Uh, they didn't want that. So, Yeah, and that historically had been a small percentage of like a more niche market for them. That they, exactly they did right. Well, so, they did well in, but the number of SPACs out there just limited the market for them. So I happen to know this person quite well. I've known him for over 25 years. And did a SPAC with him in the beginning of September? Another deal at the end of September, and the pricing difference was considerable. And when I called him, I said, you know, wait a minute, what's going on? Look, I can't write all this business. I have to write less. So I decided I was going to increase my prices by 50%. Well, unfortunately, at the end of September, he still had the same percentage market share. So he increased the prices again by 50% the next month and the next month after that. Hmm. And it continued on. And right now, these underwriters, just because of the explosion of the number of SPACs, they're writing way more than they'd like. They don't have the actuarial data, you know, because of the newness of this type of volume. They don't have the actuarial data to support it. And there's so the big so are the price increases driven by both the kind of lack of clarity around risk and the kind of lack of supply. Those two things really. Yep, it's the merging of those storms. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, when you're trying to underwrite a SPAC, just by the nature of the process, 
you're really, you know, you're getting a crack to look at an S1, which isn't going to necessarily tell you very much. You're underwriting the management team, but they've got tremendous latitude on, on what to buy. And you're underwriting a lot of that risk. And you don't know what you'd ordinarily know if you were just underwriting a straight IPO. So the market has gone up dramatically. Now, what does that mean? Investors that went out and said, hey, we're going to go raise you know, $4 million, and that'll carry us through the 24 months of expense until we find a business to buy. Well, if you were expecting your insurance cost was going to be 300000 of that $4 million, so be it. Well, when it's come back and that it's now $2 million instead of three or $400,000, that's half of your investor fund. That's a disruption. And a lot of people have gone through that. Uh, they've promised directors a large limit. They can't afford it because they don't have enough money raised. And it's causing a lot of disruption. Uh, so we've developed a few unique products that will satisfy this issue, but it's a constant battle and the market is still hardening. And how about uh, when you're conducting diligence or your team is conducting diligence of SPAC targets? Are you looking at their coverages differently for a SPAC deal versus a private equity deal? Or is it generally kind of the same analysis on the diligence side of the target? You know, for someone that's done M&A diligence virtually my entire career, I would say, no, it's not the same. It hasn't evolved to that yet. Many times the, 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 the SPAC target itself wasn't even necessarily for sale. They hadn't done... They don't have a data room for someone to come in and look at. They don't have all the all the, the paperwork accumulated to do a normal due diligence process. And given some time frame and everything else that's going on, we don't see the the any anywhere near the quality of, of due diligence being done on a SPAC target that we would a, a regular private equity or MA target. So let's talk a little bit about rep and warranty insurance. In the SPAC deal, the seller, from what I'm seeing, is kind of getting a no indemnity deal. Is there any role of rep and warranty insurance in SPACs right now? or And is that evolving at all? I would say yes to both. Clearly, there's a role. And you're, you're correct. You know, Sellers in, in this market have a, a great deal of control over the terms and conditions. Uh, it's favorable to them. And the buyer, in order to get the deal over the line, is going to have to do no indemnity deals. So rep and warranty insurance is the perfect vehicle to do that. Now, this goes back to your prior question. Rep and warranty insurance is effectively underwriting the due diligence process and the quality of the diligence reports. And that's how a rep and warranty underwriter gets comfortable to give you rep and warranty insurance. Mm -hmm. I think until we see that the diligence process improve, we're not going to see the number of rep and warranty solutions improve for SPACs. So that is still a growing area. And the percentage of SPAC transactions that are doing rep and warranty insurance, I'm going to say less than 20%, whereas in our normal M&A activity, it's closer to 60% of the deals are doing rep and warranty. I'm sure we'll see that increase in the in the coming months and years. Um, it just has to because the product makes so much sense, I would think, for that transaction. It does. 
So let's talk more about rep and warranty insurance. You know, as a uh, M&A lawyer working in the healthcare space, it's something that has come on extremely quickly <laughs> in the transactions that I handle and my colleagues that, that handle healthcare private equity deals handle, you know, and in healthcare, it really wasn't till about, uh, I don't know, about, I'll, I'll say three to four years ago that we started to get coverage for some of the most important representations in a healthcare deal, which is kind of the compliance with laws, regulatory compliance, and billing and coding. Can you talk to me a little bit about that that evolution? <laughs> How underwriters came to be comfortable with the healthcare segments and, and other regulated segments too. I'm sure that my experience in healthcare is not unique, right? I assume there's other regulated segments that saw the scope of coverage broaden. How did that happen? I guess, is it just the number of underwriters that are in the market, diligence strength? What caused that change that we, that pretty dramatic change? Because things in my space don't change that much. (laughs) The stock purchase agreement has been the same for 25 years, generally with little trimming around the edges. But now this is a really fast change that we've seen. So I, I think there's the the first part of the general evolution of the of the non-healthcare piece of the rep and warranty market. I can remember this being a product that we, we were using at Aon and back in the day. And in the 1990s, it was a 12% rate on limit. And yeah, we didn't sell a whole lot of them. Well, as time came on, when the market got got down to about 6% of limit as the price, interest really started to peak. And as underwriters got more and more volume, they got more and more data behind them, they got more and more comfortable, and that 6% rate started dropping. Not only did the rates start to drop, but, but traditional classes of business like healthcare that were more problematic and very few underwriters wanted it, pricing came down, and now, okay, Let's start to look at, at being able to do healthcare deals. A lot of experienced healthcare investors. We have mutual, many mutual clients together. A number of them began to use rep and warranty three, five years ago, and it was truly a differentiating factor in their bid. And the market being as competitive as it is, you know, when people were losing out deals to those, to those traditionally great private equity healthcare funds, others had to start to follow. So healthcare pricing has come down. It's, there are certain markets that have focused on it, and it's, it's a very robust market if you know how to do it. And that really is the key. Happy to go into a bit of that if you'd like. Yeah, so tell, tell us more. What's, <laughs> what, well, you know, so let's, let's, let's mention billing and coding, uh, you know, a, a key issue for the healthcare uh, deal. Well, as I mentioned before, the underwriter is going to be doing effectively, their underwriting is off of whoever you've hired to do the diligence for the billing and coding. Well, billing and coding due diligence is not cheap. Mm -hmm. And what percentage of files are you going to do? Mm -hmm. We see, unfortunately, some healthcare private equity firms will come to us and say, yep, you know, we want you to do the rep and warranty insurance, and we've hired uh, Smith & Smith in Oklahoma 
to do the healthcare billing review. Well, don't know Smith and Smith. Uh, and and how many? And what percentage of files are you doing? Oh, uh, you know we're gonna do, we're gonna look at uh, five of every thousand uh, bills. Okay, well, you're not going to be successful. Yeah. On that basis, so there yeah. are the, the the higher the quality of firm that's doing the audit and due diligence work, and depending on the type of healthcare practice, making sure you hear from experts what percentage of files to be reviewed, that is going to get you the right conclusion and the right coverage on your rep and warranty policy. Yeah. yeah I think something that we've seen uh, that is important with the billing and coding diligence is just that specialty, like you mentioned. Uh, billing and codings, you know, reviewers should be seen as almost like physicians themselves <laughs> in that, uh, you know, the coding that's specific to a gastroenterology physician practice versus a home health agency is just light years different. And so you need to ensure that the, the diligence provider really has a deep understanding of the subsector that you're in. But it sounds like that billing and coding, that, that's been really the key, is that getting the right diligence done on billing and coding helps give the underwriters the comfort to give coverage for you know, that compliance with laws, regulatory billing and coding and so forth. Exactly. And look, I will also say there are diligence providers in this area that the rep and warranty market will not support, where they've had to pay losses because of the diligence that wasn't done the right way. So if you happen to say you want to use one of those firms that has missed the topic in the past, you will often get rep and warranty carriers who will decline to offer you coverage unless you have a, a, another party redo the diligence. So checking with a, a knowledgeable broker that does a lot of this before you engage in that diligence, money well spent. Yeah. So where do you see pricing going in the rep and warranty insurance market? You know, we've seen, I think I've seen a little bit of an increase lately maybe driven by COVID from last year and some of the impacts of that. What, what do you see the outlook for the, the pricing market on these policies look like? So for, for almost 20 years, it's been a, a continuous drop in price. That literally has changed in the last sort of six months. And it's, it's not that we're seeing a hockey stick of increase in price like we are in DNO insurance or SPAC insurance or, or public company DNO insurance, it's a gradual increase. So instead of getting a, a 2.9% rate online, maybe it's now 3.1 or 3.2. The real area where we're seeing the more dramatic price increase is on the larger deals. If it's a enterprise value over a billion dollars, yeah, you, you we have seen 4% rates up from just low threes six months to a year ago. So the market has still done pretty well in middle market rep and warranty loss experience. It's the larger deals that have hit them and they're looking to, to get some correction on price. And what kind of losses were those larger deals seeing? Was it the typical financial statement losses? What kind of losses were behind the, the curtain there that that your yeah. underwriters experience. That is certainly one of the leading causes. But 
it's a multiplier effect, sort of in reverse, but sort of in front. What I mean by that is if we're going to have a an issue and you're paying 15 times EBITDA on a very large deal and you uncover a $10 million issue, well, it's really a $150 million loss. I see. Yeah. So it's the larger deals that are tending to find the larger issues mm-hmm. and the the consequential damage end of the stick is driving big, bigger claims. And we're not seeing that so much in the, you know, $100 million, $500 million deals, but the excess of a billion is where the market's a little, a little harder right now. And so let's talk about measuring different underwriters, because we've, we've seen policy terms start to kind of come in line with each other between underwriters. So then if you, get, you have similar policy coverage, you have similar pricing, how does an investor and their you know, counsel decide which underwriter is better? How do you coach them through that? So you know, when we spreadsheet out all of the options, there are still going to be deal differences between the various parties. And you know, again, when you talk about healthcare, there's going to be different approaches by different markets. I'd say constantly changing, not dramatic constant, but constantly changing. Yeah, the price has not been the big differentiator in who you select as your your partner. Reputation, past deals done. I mean, we've got one very large healthcare fund. They've probably done 85% of their rep and warranty deals with Ethos. There's a great relationship. And when you're doing healthcare investing and you go to from different aspects that are a little bit hairier to underwrite, it's kind of nice to have a, have a relationship with a firm that isn't just, well, if we're going to do five deals a year, we're going to do four different carriers. Mm-hmm. If you've got one carrier that's getting most of it, they take the hairier stuff when they wouldn't ordinarily, and they take the good stuff as well. So just like other insurance products, that kind of relationship can matter. It, it is. I, I think there's also some distinctions when you look at some of the new capacity that's come into the marketplace. Um, you know, There are carriers that have their own paper, and they're adjusting their own losses. You've got uh, managing general agents or consortiums where you're dealing with an underwriter on pricing, but you're going to deal with a completely different set of individuals on claim payment. Mm -hmm. We find that to be a a little bit awkward, but there are some that are much better than others. And quite frankly, when we present our spreadsheets to the clients and the attorneys are on the calls going through it with us, we find that most of the attorneys will have a preference for one carrier or another on that spreadsheet. So relationship, very important. Yeah. Yeah. I think the large law firms like McDermott, we're all starting to get our own experience and database of, all right, well, we we had a major claim into a certain uh, carrier and uh, you know it, it paid out with limited pushback as long as we had, had documented correctly and demonstrated the claim was legitimate. You know, we're starting to keep track of that ourselves. So the attorneys definitely bring bring that experience to the table. Well, and, and on claims payment, I mean, there's there are a handful of brokers that are effectively good at at this this end of the the industry. And 
if one of these markets is going to deny a claim for you know, one of the big players, you're going to see an immediate shutdown of submission flow. So it's, it's pretty hard for these carriers to not pay a gray area claim. So if you're dealing with the right people, you're going to get the gray areas covered. So makes sense. The last thing I wanted to maybe touch on before we uh, close out is just what's the global rep and warranty insurance market look like? You know, within healthcare deals, we don't as much see, you know, provider transactions being global, but within the pharma services space, uh, clinical research organizations, clinical data organizations, medical device manufacturers, we see an uh, increasing trend of U.S. private equity funds doing transactions in Europe and Asia. Uh, and sometimes they're looking at a, a policy that's based outside of the U.S. Just for a U.S. investor that's looking at that kind of deal, what are the, the big things they need to know that are maybe a little bit different about a non-U.S. rep and warranty policy? So I think you know when you look at various areas of the world, you know, rep and warranty insurance has been accepted in certain areas of the world much more readily than, than we have here. You know, I, I think of Australia, much higher percentage of deals are doing rep and warranty insurance in Australia. So if you're a, a buyer and you're trying to, to look at businesses in various areas of the world, like Australia, we'll use you better be fully embraced on the rep and warranty side because that's 100% their expectation. I also think that the, the right local partners are key. The differences in the, in the rep and warranty underwriting in-country versus just using London or just using New York, pretty widespread. We, we, we find oftentimes better terms by using partners in-country to get these deals done significantly better, but you have to be open-minded to finding those people and dealing with them and knowing who they are. That that makes sense. Big pricing differential? It's evolving. We see, again, I'll use Australia as an example, uh, cheaper than the U.S. or London by far. Hmm. So yeah, if you had a U.S.-based company buying a company in Australia, don't buy a rep and warranty insurance in New York. And is the coverage significantly different then with that lower pricing or is, is, are less things covered? No, it, it's fairly similar, but I will say that sometimes the evolution of their wording and their coverage is not yet up to the standards we see here. So it's, it's educating that market, that, and this is where the attorneys are crucial, it's educating that market that we, it's normal for us to see these types of protections. Mm -hmm. We love the fact that your pricing is lower, but we need you to be uh, open-minded to the, to the terms of the contract, the policy wording, and how we're going to do things. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Neil, I really enjoyed uh, spending some time together. Where can our listeners reach you? Why don't you give us your uh, email address? Sure. N Crowder, K R. A-U-T-E-R at CrowderGroup.com. And uh, 201-247-5230. Great. Thanks so much, Neil. We'll look forward to talking soon. All right. Thanks again. Great seeing you. 
Thanks so much for listening. For more insights and analysis about healthcare private equity investments and the changing landscape of healthcare and life sciences private equity transactions, check out McDermott's Healthcare and Life Sciences News blog at healthcarelifesciencesnews.com. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2021, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.